Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Hey there, Dr. Robin. How are you? I feel like we start the podcast the same way every day or every week because it's like, here we are again. Here we are. Here we are. So um, we just had a long weekend. Yep. And um, thank God actually, we're not recording on Mondays anymore. I know. I know. I uh, I was really grateful for an extra day. Um, you know, regardless of, you know, the nonsense that comes with the fact that, you know, we kind of celebrating, um, not, not, I mean, not that we're celebrating war, we're celebrating those that have sacrificed for us. Um, right. But the fact that we have, uh, you know, a, a war military industrial complex in and of itself is complicated, right? Um, but I was really grateful for an extra day. I have felt... Um, I have felt as if I wake up on a Friday and feel like it was just Friday mm-hmm. and I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, wait, there were seven days here and I, I miss them all. <laughs> I know I lived through them, but I, I feel like it, it just happened. And so, yep. um, I was really grateful for, for yesterday and, uh, I, was able to uh, go to see some live music this weekend. Yes. Which tell um, us all about it as, because I'm very as, jealous. Oh my god! As my as the listeners know, like y- you all know that this is Robin and I's jam. Like we we love live music. We love um, you know uh, going to shows and going to festivals. Um, but we have a very dear friend. Um, her name is Sarah Potenza, and Sarah was a contestant on The Voice um, several years ago. Five or six years ago but um has since released a few albums and and i have become very dear friends with sarah and um she and her husband live in nashville and last uh this weekend was her first time performing live since the pandemic uh shut life down and she invited another artist a chicago-based blues artist named katie caden which if you watched the voice last year you saw katie um and her amazing uh musical stylings uh on that on that season of the voice and the two of them were in concert together Mm -hmm. in nashville on sunday i i know that i am this may seem hyperbolic but i really like i felt my face melting off Mm. they were so good and so powerful both of these women are alto deep voiced blues artists they are white women but they have this um just this gravel in their voice that feels very like jazz 
club, blues mm-hmm. club. It, and I am just, I, I'm stunned not just by how talented they are, but also how amazing of humans they are. Mm-hmm. And I got to see Sarah backstage and give her a big hug and, and catch up. And I am just, it was really just the most enjoyable few hours for me um, to watch these women sing by themselves and then to do all of these amazing duets. And I mean, really like I honestly, like I could do an entire episode just on how remarkable this show was. But um, what I will tell our listeners is that although Sarah was on the voice several years ago, um, she is actively kind of looking for a jumpstart to her career again. I mean, music artists are, there are so many talented people and it really is hard to try to find your niche Mm -hmm. in a market that is so oversaturated, driven by capitalism and, and really problematic for women artists. Right. And, and also, and also if you don't have a certain body, Exactly. Yes. I mean, Sarah is, um, Sarah is curvy like me and gorgeous. Uh, I mean, just beyond, but anyway, I, um, Sarah has announced, um, publicly now that she is actually already auditioned and will be on America's Got Talent this summer. And so, uh, today is June the 1st, the day we're recording and America's Got Talent previews tonight in most, uh, in most of the country. So when the episode drops, if you haven't watched America's Got Talent this year, I would encourage you to just watch for a few episodes until you see Sarah sing. I really think that you are going to have one of those moments where you're like, I want to follow this woman Mm -hmm. till the end of this competition. She's that good. I actually, I actually made a comment on someone's post online, the uh, Twitter post the other day that I actually feel sorry for a lot of the other contestants on AGT. It, It just isn't fair that they have to compete against her. Mm. That's how that's how good I think mm-hmm. she is. So that was my weekend. That was the exciting part of my weekend. If you don't know Sarah Potenza, I would encourage you to go check out her music. And um, she's just a remarkable human. So, Yeah, and she's also a friend of the Activist Theology Project. She performed at the book launch we had. She did. Uh, which was, you know, almost two years ago now which I can't believe the book has been out almost two years. I know it's insane. Um, She also did the art and social healing um, thing that we did with Vanderbilt. In fact, the, the art and religion person, Dr. Steph Budway asked for Sarah Potenza. Can we get Sarah Potenza? And I was like, well, we can try, you know? And so, you know, I texted her and she was like, yes, let's do it. And in fact, Sarah and I were in Chicago at the same time and Sarah worked at this hippie vegetarian restaurant in Chicago at the same time in Rogers Park at the same time when I lived in Rogers Park, same years. And she said to me, oh, we definitely met. We had, we had, I was, I was at this place all the time for live music and for food. I had to have met her. Uh, but now because of your relationship with Sarah and 
because we got that swanky deal to go on that Melissa Etheridge cruise. Come on. We were able to meet Delta Ray and Sarah Potenza and actually become good friends with both of them. Um, so I'm very excited for both of those bands. Uh, I think that they are leading, you know, this sort of storytelling music change agent. Yeah. Unapologetic. Yep. Unapologetic, holy. I mean, recognize that li- that the traditional label, kind of signing with a label and being um, under the thumb of that label mm-hmm. is not beneficial to their capacity to tell those stories in right. ways that are impactful and, and have decided to walk away from yep. the big label environment and take a chance mm-hmm. on figuring it out on their own. And um, it, it allows them to really have a richness mm-hmm. to the storytelling they're allowed to do. Um, but it's also super fucking scary yeah. to be someone who, you know, really relies on the money that a label mm-hmm. can put behind you, but then try to do it on your own. Well, I mean, I think about that myself as a writer. Do I want to sign with the publisher or do I want to self-publish? And, you know, our good friend Kevin Garcia self-published his book, and he's not been beholden to uh, publisher politics, whatnot. So um, all to say the tentacles of supremacy culture are found in mysterious ways. Yes. Um, but you did mention that we're, re- that we're recording on June 1st, which is the first day of Pride Month. Yes. Which for a lot of people or a lot of businesses really means rainbow capitalism. And they talk like they are accepting, affirming of LGBTQIA persons, but really they just want our money. And maybe we'll be talking about that this month. Uh, I mean, there's so much to talk about. So much. Every day, you know, but happy Pride Month to to folks. I'm always happy to to be in the sphere with queer-friendly folks. And Anna is, as you know, her story, um, one of the biggest advocates for queer people that a person could have. And so super delighted to be here with you on this first day of Pride Month. Um, So, yeah, it was a long weekend. And as folks know, I'm still in California, but it's coming to an end. And Aaron and I are very excited to get back to Nashville, partially because we miss our space and we we just miss the culture. Um, There's something about the South that, I mean, I can be nostalgic about things, but there really is something about the South that feels holy and sacred. Yeah. The pace. I mean, she's she's a petty and fickle bitch, but the South (laughs) is really, really sacred. Yes. Yeah. So we're excited to get back. Uh, We miss our kitties, Diego and Frida. Thank you to Darren Jackson and Abra Miles who have been house sitting and cat sitting for us. Um, But we're headed back on Friday and this will be our second flight in a year and a half. And, um, you know, as I've been out in the world, I've been paying attention to the way people behave or misbehave, I should say. Yeah, misbehave is probably more apropos, except that many white folks would term 
what others would say is their misbehavior was simply as their entitled behavior Mm -hmm. the 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 space that they are welcomed to fill and take up simply because of who they are and 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 who they are uh they assume themselves to be in the world right right which which feels problematic to me yeah for sure for sure so as you um i had not heard this story and you very um wisely asked me to look up um, an incident that happened uh, last week on southwest airlines there was um an altercation between a flight attendant and a passenger whereby um and it was a conversation over mask wearing um, Southwest has a policy about mask wearing. And they are very serious about it. They are serious about it. They are, to use the word, they are unapologetic about mm-hmm. their stance. And the rules are the rules are the rules. Right. Now, you can debate the rules all you want if you are not on a flight. Right. But if you are on a flight and you have agreed to follow those rules in order to get from one place to another, it's, I mean, Look, I'm all about making good trouble. I'm all about like thwarting a system when the system is unfair and unjust. Um, But white folks have this mentality that all of this, all of the the precautions that have come with the pandemic is in some way kind of an infringement on their rights as humans Mm -hmm. versus an effort for us to care for one each other one another and be in community with one another which oddly feels like libertarianism right like individual rights and whatnot right and i'm like that can't be good for all of us right and and so when i heard about this story i immediately assumed that the person who assaulted the flight attendant was a white man and 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 i don't know if that is true. And I don't know if you've found if, if he is a white man. He is not. She is a white woman. She is a white woman. She is a white woman. And she assaulted another white woman so violently that in a few punches, the flight attendant lost several teeth. Wait, wait, you're telling me the person who assaulted is not a white man. It's a white woman. That's correct. A white woman assaulted a white woman. A white woman passenger assaulted a white woman flight attendant. Holy shit. Knocked out her teeth. I knew about the teeth. Yes. Made, I mean, just complete, I mean, there in the videos, you can see the, the trauma that this yeah. woman it, it has endured and, and there is blood and it, it's not for the weak. Um, don't, don't search. And right. you know, this is not about trauma porn. This is about speaking to the emblematic issue that we have with with rage and violence that is embedded in white bodies. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's really kind of where we're going with this episode, but yes, it was a white woman who assaulted another white woman on this, on this Southwest flight. So, you know, this just takes me back to the election of 2016 and, and the number of white women who put Trump in office and I just feel really curious about white women and, and you know, people, people want to downplay white women, but actually white women are as dangerous as white men. 
We are. I mean, there, you know, I, I say, I, I have said this on the podcast a few times, and I really do believe, I mean, you know, uh, as a, as a cisgender, straight, white woman, I am only like one tick on the dial, less privileged and less um, identified as privileged than a white man right. of my same stature. And with that um, has come this realization that, you know, regardless of how you fall on um, a kind of a feminist rights and a need for, um, you know, women in general to, to have a, a, a to, to be given kind of the same playing field as men are. White men and white women are, are really in the exact same spot when it comes to the, 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 privilege that we have, the entitlement that we assume because of that privilege, um, what we what we think the world owes us, mm-hmm. and how we then respond in right. kind when those things are not provided to us mm-hmm. with the standard with which we expect it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, when I think about this incident and and in fact Aaron and I have decided to pick up some Starbucks gift cards for the flight attendants because I'm in a hyper monogamous relationship with Southwest still am I love Southwest it's all I fly um, and thank goodness they fly to my ancestral home because it means that I can get to Mexico on Southwest. Now on occasion I do fly Delta when it's easier but um Southwest is my go-to. So Aaron and I have decided uh, after reading the story to get South uh, to get Starbucks gift cards because look, I mean, I ran rave about Starbucks all the time, but every airport has right. a Starbucks and they can get coffee right. or a drink or whatever. Right. That's an accessibility problem, yeah. not a, not a capitalist problem. Right. right. So yeah, you just got to deal with it. So we're going to give Southwest gift, uh, Southwest gift cards. Um, Starbucks gift cards to the Southwest flight attendants as a thank you for putting up with the bullshit of people. Because let me tell you, when we were flying out here to California, we were on a four hour flight or four and a half hour flight from Nashville to Las Vegas with about an hour layover in Las Vegas. And then a very short flight to Fresno. But in that four hour flight, there was a woman of color flight attendant who had to tell an older white passenger lady to stop poking her and stop touching her. And I was like, why did, why, why do white people think that they can touch other people? Like, I don't understand. And so several times this woman of color flight attendant had to say, please stop poking me. Please stop touching me. And the flight attendant was like trying to deliver water and whatnot. And so that was my first sort of four-way foray into, oh, there is a real struggle here on how people are in public. People are misbehaving and people are misbehaving because they feel entitled to behave in whatever way they they deem as necessary, right? That's dangerous from a community health 
perspective and from a healing perspective. It scares me. Yes. You're right. It, it is a, it is a problem and it's dangerous. And, but let's be real honest. I mean, this is, this is, these are the actions of white people and have been the actions of white people for centuries. True. Um, so you it's, know, ingrained it's ingrained in the culture. I mean, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, European colonists came to this country claiming privilege over lands that were not and were never theirs. Right. By way of a, a word called discovered, mm-hmm. when they discovered nothing, there were right. already humans living here. And the way that they occupied the space and the way that they embodied their entitlement was they murdered mm-hmm. a, a significant number of of indigenous humans. I think we call that genocide. You call it genocide, correct. Um, in order for them to... To, to, to claim what was never theirs in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, then those same people parlayed that entitlement into a concept of manifest destiny, mm-hmm. where they believed that not only were they entitled to the land because they had discovered it with an asterisk, right. but because God, God's self, had promised it to them because they were good faithful, holy Christians. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, this understanding of entitlement has made its way through our history as a country. It it then manifested itself in, in the slave trade Mm -hmm. um, that white people believed they were entitled to own people that did not look like them, that were not of this country, that were not um, of the same skin color. Um, I mean, this is this entitlement process has never once left us. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, we talk about it and we engage in it as if it is um, something that is new or, or radical for this time. Mm-hmm. It, it is only new and radical because we finally have I think, I mean, not enough white people, but we finally have a coalition of white folks who have had the capacity to say, fuck, mm-hmm. we we have got to interrogate this. Mm-hmm. We have got to look back on, on what we have done and why this has happened and where we were complicit in that activity and, and start to untangle it and, and, and just kind of get it out, get it out of this like ball of stuff and and start to learn the ways that, that we have been problematic all these years. Um, We aren't there in any stretch of the imagination, but that interrogation and the, our capacity to name that it needs to be interrogated in the first place, our white folks' capacity to name it needs to be interrogated. Black folks and, and brown folks have been telling us that we need to in- interrogate this for, for years. Right. There are finally people that are willing to say, you're right, we need to interrogate it Um we don't know what that looks like, but mm-hmm. we're at least willing to, to to start to unpack our own shit around it. I'll never forget. I was in seminary in Chicago and a Korean American church history professor who's a dear friend of mine to this day. Her name is Dr. Sujin Park. She's now the dean at Boston University. 
she was at Duke. She hired me to, to go to Duke, but she was once my seminary professor. And my former partner and I used to celebrate holidays with Sujin. And Sujin's best friend would come from Iowa from, from medical school with her husband, Ashley and Dave. And I'll never forget, I made a comment that said, oh, Latinos are taking over what's rightfully theirs. And Dave, who is a cis white man, takes up a lot of space in the room, said it was never theirs. And, 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 and this sort of settler colonial mindset uh, is so prevalent among white folks that you get comments like that. Oh, it was never theirs. W- well, wait. Um, Whose was it? Right, exactly. I'm like, the British did come and take away a lot of, of indigenous lands and over half of Mexico was annexed into the United States. So, yeah, like where I am now is is what is often referred to as Aslan, which is the mythical land of Mexico that during the 1800s was annexed into the United States. So um, there is a there is like it's baked into the DNA of our cultural memory that what we have has always been ours. And if you and if you remember, I don't know if y'all listened to last week where we talked about the Israel and Palestine situation, but there is a settler colonial mentality there too, and there is a sort of a genocide happening there too. And this is not taking sides on either issue. It's just a matter of when we talk about God's chosen people or being good people it turns it into then we are entitled to have certain things to behave in a certain way exercise quote unquote our rights in a certain way etc which actually may be unethical i mean i would contend that it is unethical i think you know you make a really excellent point in your in in this understanding of um, perception and the perception of white folks. Um, and because as you so often and, and importantly say, we have no historical memory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what we know and what we think we have learned um, creates this understanding within us that what is ours is rightfully ours and right. it has always been rightfully ours. Right. And, and, and I don't, and I don't think that some folks have the capacity to even think that there's a wrongness about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, we we have just, um, you know, we are commemorating the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. Right. Um, we have watched over the last five years um, white men and, and in, in some cases women um, – seeking to reclaim what they believe they are destined to own. And, and, and it is how white supremacy is, is permeating into our culture. I mean, mm-hmm. w- you know, when, when you and I were in Charlottesville, those 
people that were marching with tiki torches and in the streets and and chanting they were there because they were scared shitless Mm -hmm. that they were going to lose the one thing that they had going for them which was that simply because they are white they are entitled to and privileged to have more and be more and make more than anyone that doesn't look like them right but we have we've created this system of fear that allows them to feel as if if someone else gets something, that means that you get less. Right. What's well, that scarcity mindset? Exactly. Exactly. And so it manifested in 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 the at the heart and in the beginning of Donald Trump's presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, it it manifested in his in the events that he would do, the election events that he would do, where people would get beat up for yelling something that was the antithesis to what his campaign event wanted to be said. It manifested in Charlottesville, Charlottesville. It manifested on January 6th when those same kinds of white men were furious that once again, they had been denied something that they believed was theirs in the first place. And they took to the Capitol to storm it in an effort to bring back what they need, what they felt like was a semblance of normalcy Mm -hmm. in, in their life and in their world, which is about, which is like code coded for like what is decent. Correct. Because everything outside of a decent norm is indecent, which Maybe what we need is more indecent ethics, more indecent theology. Yeah. Or if we take a spiritual uh, bend on that, it's the it's the difference of the sacred and the profane. Mm -hmm. We you know, the profane is that which is not of 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 creation, not of goodness, not of community, not of not of God, not of God. Um, And. And, and the sacred is that which binds us, that which, which engages and knits us together in this community of, of oneness that, that doesn't allow this kind of thing to separate us mm-hmm. and, and to tear us apart. But it's remarkable how we continue to see this entitlement narrative play out in ways that we seem shocked by. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always been here uh-huh. and it and it is recreating itself all the time. Yep. And yet, what do we do about the rage and the entitlement and the scarcity and the fear that folks feel over losing something that was never theirs to begin with? Right. I mean, how do we even begin to combat that? Well, I mean, I feel like through relationships, right? I mean, I, I, I find a lot of people actually don't know how to be in relationships. I So this is just a side story to illustrate this. Um, I So we were in Northern California a couple days ago. We took a little day trip and we stopped at a nature preserve to get in some nature. And it, it, it was in the Sacramento Valley and I was wearing pink shorts and a shirt, a blue shirt, navy blue shirt that said Latinx gasp, 
So here I was, I had my sunglasses on, I'm ready to like experience the nature preserve. And I walked by these two people and, and one, the man was visibly brown. So I'm like, oh, okay, he's a Latino. And he raised up, he was like, oh, Latinx, you believe in that? And then he launched into, and I was like, well, I don't, I don't know that I believe in it. But he was not interested in a conversation. He just launched into uh, a sort of diatribe about, you know, he's Puerto Rican and he's a Boricua and Latino. He's, you know, we, we, we don't say Latinx because Latinx comes from Hispanic and that means spick. He's sort of a purist, a Puerto Rican purist. And, and what I found so interested or interesting in that exchange is he was not interested in hearing anything that I said which signals to me no interest in relationship. Right. And I find that is very common. And, and I take this approach of how do we listen to one another? How do we actually hear one another into speech? Because what are we actually saying? Do we understand what we are saying? Cause he asked me, do you believe in that? So I'm like, do you understand? Like the nature of your question is philosophical, but I don't really think that you mean that. Right. So I repeated it back to him and he didn't hear me right. and he just went into his own thing. And, and I often find that, and this is why I say this so often, every time I have the chance, we don't know how to be in relationship with one another. And I believe relationships will save us. It's relationships all the way down. Yes. And until until we learn how to be in relationship with one another, we won't be able to listen and we won't be able to hear and we won't be able to act in a way that brings us together in a kind of unified whole. That doesn't mean sameness. It means we won't be able to bridge with one another in a way that creates conditions for a kind of flourishing to happen. And, and so I found that experience so fascinating. I, I thought about it the entire mile hike that I did. Like, I'm wearing a t-shirt. Obviously, it's political. Um, and when it gets red, there's no conversation. There's no relationship. I, I mentioned that to say it's another example of how our transactional relationality is harming us. Because there was a really great opportunity there to to build a relationship just through a short conversation on my t-shirt. Right. Yeah. You know, I was thinking as you were as you were saying this, what what an alternative question may have been to mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And and I I ran through a few things in my mind and I kept coming back to the question, what does what does that mean to you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In gesturing to your shirt, right. what does that mean to you? Right. It offers a. Res- it offers. It's in- it's inquisitive. It right. asks for you to respond in a way. It's invitational, right? That appears as if he's going to listen, right? And 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 take in what you have said, right? And then it not only does that, but it offers you to then ask the exact same question in kind. Yeah. This is what it means to me. What does it mean to you? Yeah. Instead of an indictment, exactly. you believe in that? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, and look, 
I, I mean, we could talk about t-shirts all day. I, I, I mean, I make snarky, yeah. political, uh, awkward t-shirts for a living. Yeah. I, I do it partially for that reason because I do believe that they are conversation starters. Mm-hmm. But I can also tell you that for all the times that I have amazing, remarkable conversations about a shirt I might be wearing that I designed, I also have conversations that are very similar to the story you just shared. Um, Indicting, um, you know, accusatory, Mm -hmm. um, really in no way curious about what it is in me that makes me believe or affirm what I'm wearing. And and I think that's what I want to highlight is we have lost curiosity for one another. And, and it's largely because of this settler colonial mentality that breeds entitlement. And when we lose curiosity, we lose imagination. And, and I, I think both of those things have been policed out of our minds and out of our cultural body through settler colonial entitled approaches and through things like statements like, well, this was never their land, right? Like, well, whose history are you reading? Right. Because my people have, have the border crossed them. They, you know, they, they were in Mexico prior to, prior to it being annexed, you know? So I, you know, I, there is, like how do we how do we breed curiosity and imagination back into our cultural body in a way that allows people to to step into that because i think so many people are scared of curiosity right so many people are scared to think for themselves and scared to figure out what they don't know right i mean i you know you and i and, and you more so than me are are very um, uh, cautious around um, white folks who only read for mm-hmm. a living to 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 only only read to inform their you know the the expanding of their understanding about history. Yes, this is true. And yet, that is still a very necessary piece mm-hmm. to the puzzle of untangling themselves from whiteness. Absolutely. Be- be- but it's the starting point. Mm-hmm. It's not the ending point. And so you can't read your way out of racism, but you can use your curiosity and your desire to educate yourself around what you think you know and 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 discover what you really never never knew in the first place. I can't tell you the number of people that I have heard on new, on the news over the last 24 hours say the words, I never knew what the Tulsa massacre was all about. Mm. It wasn't taught to me in school. I, I, it wasn't in my history books. I had no idea what happened. I didn't even learn that there was a massacre in Tulsa until I was an adult. Mm-hmm. And these are black people and brown people and white people alike mm-hmm. who have never been given the, the possibility for that curiosity right? because our history books and our, our desire to, to, to narrate, to narrow the narrative mm-hmm. Have have forced us to to not be inquisitive and to not mm-hmm. try to figure out what we don't know. Um, I, I think that you know there's this there's this perspective that 
um, white folks deserve the right to define things how everyone should see them. Uh-huh. That white folks are the curators of the definitions, yep. are the curators of the stories, are the definers of the tactics and of the history. White folks write the scripts. Right. And and it is it is in and, and then we demand other people to just go along with those definitions. Right. We demand that that, that the history history is written by the victors, which we have almost always been. That and that those definitions that we have prescribed are the definitions that everyone else should follow. Mm-hmm. And and that's that destroys the the capacity for us to understand the narrative and the story of anyone else. Right. It just it it is that that act on our behalf is is as demoralizing and decentering as the the question that the man asked you at the nature preserve right like right it 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 does not offer any ability for us to come to come to a place of of communication mm-hmm. and of relationality well and where you say books and reading are a starting point i see i would say actually relationships are a starting point fair um we're i think that many of us are socialized into reading because reading is is largely a disembodied practice where to be in relationship with people uh is an embodied practice which i mean we, you know, maybe one day we'll do an episode about our relationship and and how actually there is a particular demand on this relationship because it is a mixed oriented, mixed race relationship that that you know we're bringing all of ourselves to this. So how actually you know it's like how do we bake the most beautiful cake with the ingredients that we are bringing? when we've been socialized in particular ways. Right. So I would actually say it's relationships that are a starting point that helps white folks get out of the conundrum of supremacy culture. And when we privilege relationships, that's when white people begin to attune themselves when they read, because reading alone without some kind of relational environment it's just transactional and and when you and when you you know reading is a relationship right so if you if you if you have a relationship that supports your orientation or your socialization and you're trying to unhinge from those places so i'm thinking of people of color who are in relationship with white folks that relationship and that mindset that framework then frames how white folks engage literature, which is really important, I think. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And I also am struck by the conundrum that often um, accompanies that, where um, white folk being in relationship with brown folk, with black folk, um, is that is a that is a that is a two-sided relationship yeah there is relationality there yeah and there are so many white folk who don't have people of color 
brown folk, black folk in their in their relationality circles. Mm-hmm. Um, they problematically seek those relationships out. Right. That, this is all true. In order to more clearly inform right. what they're reading. Or make themselves feel better. Make themselves feel better. They cause harm in yep. doing that. Yep. They, they re-traumatize um, and, in, and in many cases minimize the capacity for relationality because of the way they enter into those relationships. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it is a really delicate dance of, of, um, of partnering and of coupling in ways that are not harmful Right. And that are and that are not performative, but also that that set white folks up to be um, able to navigate the both and in mm-hmm. real ways. And so I, I, I want to name that because I think that there's a lot of folks that probably listen to us that are like me, that are white folks yeah. that are in the middle of this disentangling that are trying to figure out their own shit and say, well, like, that's great, Robin, but I, like, I don't. I don't have any brown people or any right. black people in my in my you know my relationality right. Venn diagram. Right. So, so now what? Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's it you know we we have become such a separatist society. And I know so many people of color won't dance with white people in relationship and that's fair it's fair it's, it's fair it, it it's it is and and it and, it, and that and the, that decision should be valued as much as any labor they decide to put into the relationship right. should be valued right yeah and you know as a latinx you know who does identify as a person of color i you know, I I just talked with uh, with a black woman up in Davis, who a colleague of mine who who said, I, I don't I don't mess with white people anymore. I'm tired of that. But she will invest in people of color who are helping white people. So she's willing to be in relationship with me to help me know how to shift the cultural narrative, and. I'm really grateful for that because without that, I mean, without the the people of color in my life who are helping to shape me so that I could be in relationship with white people, I, I would just die of white strangulation, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and we are a separatist society. We, we are so separated from one another. We're so fragmented. That's largely due to whiteness and supremacy culture. And, you know, I, I'm really interested in how do we create bridges of belonging through our differences, in light of our differences, with our differences. And that takes time and patience. And white folks are expected to do a ton of work. And we have to remember people of color. I mean, I'll never forget when I went to Creating Change, one of, one of the first years I went to Creating Change, they had... Um, a day-long race institute and they had a track for white folks and track for people of color. And I went to the people of color and I went to internalize depression, internalize racism. And it was the first, I mean, this is probably 10 years ago. And I, and I went 
to this. And I thought, oh my God, that is what this is called, internalized oppression. So we have to remember, I, I mentioned that to say, we all bring our own shit, our baggage to our relationships. White folks are dealing with overt racism and internalized racism and internalized patriarchy and misogyny, etc. And people of color are also dealing with that. It comes out differently. Right. But, but we are all dealing with supremacy culture. It's impacted us all. It's the water we swim in. Yeah. I mean, we are all, and we are conditioned regardless of what color our skin is. We are conditioned to whiteness. Right. From the, from the day we are born. Right. Um, no matter, no matter the, the intention or the ways that your family has, um, you know, has, has tried, has changed that narrative for you. Right. Right. Um, there is still a conditioning to whiteness that is occurring. Well, even my own brown Mexican mother says we're not Mexican. And I look at her like she's got three eyes. I'm like, I know, right? I'm like, you're brown and woman and immigrant. You're Mexican, you know? Anyways, that's a side story. But yes, we are all conditioned to whiteness, to to this normalizing society. And, And it's harmed us all. All to say, to bring it back to Southwest Airlines and entitlement, when we misbehave... We are harming ourselves and each other. And that is not bringing us any closer to the kind of world we long to inhabit. I really believe we can build another possible world, but we have to do it together. We do. We have to do it in community. Um, I am I am eternally... I still pinch myself sometimes that I have had um, the the privilege to accompany you mm. um, and to be on this um, in the in the in the community building um, work with you. Um, I mean, you've taught me more than anyone else has ever taught mm. me about this work, um, and and I don't say that. I know it's not been easy for you too. It's not been easy, no. Um, but it, but I don't say it's not been easy. Uh, it, to make um, folks feel sorry for me or to, to you know, remind myself, oh, like I've done so much work. Right. Um, I, I say it because it is in the uncomfortableness. It is mm-hmm. in the, the um, capacity that you have had to, um, to, to, name hard things mm-hmm. to have hard conversations um, and also the capacity that you have had to say to me um, like like I I have I I see you get it mm-hmm. like I, I I see that that you or that you have I see Anna that that you are different in the way you respond to that now yeah. than you were in the way that you responded to that a year ago yeah um and and I think that that relationality that ability that we have to value one another as kin mm-hmm. um, and also to be willing to labor with one another mm-hmm. because it is labor. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying to give birth to a new world. Exactly. Um, and in doing, in, in birthing the relationship that we have, mm-hmm. we, we are, we are contributing to that, that, that dream, mm-hmm. that beautiful vision of, of Nirvana, of, mm-hmm. of, um, you know, of Eden, that yeah. that, come on, that we Buddhist think is Christian. possible. Come on, come on. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so I think, you know, if, if nothing else, um, you know, may we be the healer of the wounds. Yeah. You know, may we, may we do that work and do it intentionally. So friends, um, you are going to see this week, we are announcing our trip to Austin Mm. and the tickets for our live podcast recording will be on sale this week. Please check out the activist theology website to purchase those tickets to join us in Austin, Texas. Very excited about the guests we're going to have. I'm I'm giddy. I'm so excited. And we, yeah, it's going to, it's just going to be a really fun, engaging night. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we encourage you to come we encourage you to check out our social media feeds and check out our our our, um website to to grab some tickets to come to the live podcast recording and stay for the weekend i mean they can stay for the weekend they can hear me preach exactly exactly um it's gonna be it's gonna be a really amazing weekend and i'm excited um like i you know i i booked i like it's the first airline flight that i've booked in 14 months and i was like who am i what is this what is this paying 250 (laughs) dollars to travel somewhere nonsense (laughs) did you make sure you filled it out all correctly i did thankfully it had all my information saved so i didn't have to rethink of you know like what's my known traveler number what what (laughs) so yeah thankfully i still had southwest um airlines uh travel funds so that i could it, it only cost me the seven dollars you know tax or whatever nice uh but yeah we're super excited about that and we also have this other announcement that we're waiting to announce y'all it's gonna happen in june it's big it's big It, it is it's really exciting for us um it's exciting for the activist theology podcast and um we can't wait to share it with you so and you know the thing that i can't get over is like we get to do public theology initiatives every week right through this podcast right and i'm like how how fortunate are we how did we get so fucking lucky yeah really really it's yeah. yeah it's a gift so so thanks for being on the journey with us friends follow us on all of our socials at activist theology and we will be back with you next week let's get free y'all are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember... Activist and theology share a tea. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. Oh,